0: Today we're talking about access to food and hoping our pandemic-induced supermarket suites have taught everyone a little empathy. That is Telekinetic. I am Mitch, you are here, and Genevieve Miller is in Indianapolis as the Director of Advocacy for Indie Hunger Network. One of the great ironies in societies that neglect the poor is that often they're really just neglecting the infrastructure, which makes the entire society sustainable. And given the infrastructure issues America is facing right now, Genevieve's background makes her a great fit for today's talk. Ben, my good man, would you please play Genevieve onto our virtual stage? Genevieve, pleasure to have you on. How's it going?
1: It's going well. Thanks for asking me on the show, Mitch. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Long time. No, no see or talk, but cool to see that you've, you progressed into um, yet another awesome kind of role working. Is it Indie Hunger Network or is that just short for Indianapolis Hunger Network?
1: Yes, Indie Hunger Network. Um, and we're a separate nonprofit, but we work really closely with the city of Indianapolis. So still very much oriented in a lot of ways in public sector work, um, but now kind of working outside of the public sector.
0: Cool. So had you on today to talk about food scarcity, food deserts, food insecurity, and all of that, I think, to maybe my, maybe my listeners are smarter than I give them credit for, but I, but I, I, I want to I frame it as if the person listening to this show is, is among the many, many people who don't really appreciate the severity and, and just the, the breadth of these issues in a country like in, in a more developed country like America, I think a lot of folks would naturally the knee-jerk reaction is like, "Oh." that sounds like stuff that happens in a third world country or that, or maybe at worst, it happens to like homeless people in America, but it doesn't happen to people I see on a daily basis. So kind of how do communities and people in a country like America that has like an embarrassment of resources, how do they become food deserts and how do they become victims of food insecurity and scarcity?
1: Mm, That's a great question. And I'll just say up front too, that I think like a lot of, Um, probably many of your listeners, I'm still learning in this space. This is something I've been passionate about and working on um, for pretty much all of my career. And I'm still learning. Um, And also, I think, you know, this issue does look different in the United States than maybe it does in in some other countries. But I think it is no less important in terms of um, kind of the resources and policies that we bring to bear. Um, So really happy to have this conversation and to learn alongside you all. But I would say to your question of how do communities become food deserts? I think the primary answer is that this is first and foremost an issue of poverty. It's an issue of poverty in the United States and relatedly of systemic investment in these communities. So often when you're looking at food deserts, these neighborhoods aren't just lacking grocery stores and other sources of food. They're also lacking other structural investments often like Mm -hmm. banks or public transportation. And so it's more a story of that systemic investment in these communities, which has led to really significant disadvantages um, to the things that allow people to not only survive, but thrive. Um, So USDA has the official definition of a food desert, which is an area with 20 percent or greater poverty and a third or more of residents who are over a mile away from a grocery store. And Mm -hmm. something interesting about that definition is it does not take into account food sources like food pantries or community gardens. Um, So that's kind of the official definition that USDA operates from. But I would say the one other important thing to note here is the difference between food access and food security. So food access is about physical proximity to food. So Lack of food access means that there's not a source of healthy food in your area, and USDA has that official definition about proximity. Hmm. Food insecurity is about not having enough money to consistently purchase the food that you need, and so it leads to a sense of uncertainty about whether you'll have enough, where you'll get enough um, and so it's a bit more i think economically oriented if that makes sense
0: yeah, no it makes perfect sense, right and and that's getting to the the issue that people in poverty deal with all the time that is hard for other folks to wrap their heads around, which is like triaging like the base level uh, components of Maslow's hierarchy. Like the, mm-hmm. the kind of thing you would never think of having to do if you were like middle or upper classes. Like, do I buy food or do I pay my car note that allows me to go get food or do I buy food and because I don't have a car? Do I pay the, my rent or do I pay my bill or whatever, because I need to be here to eat food. And it's like just, just concepts that are obviously like in a, in a state of, uh, you know, progress and innovation and the kind of stuff that we approach a lot on this podcast. That's the kind of thing that should be embarrassing for folks to, to realize is that there's so many people in America who are still making those decisions on a, on a daily or weekly basis. Like, you know, what of the six things that shouldn't have to be compromised. Do I have to compromise today? Which is which is crazy. And then the physical proximity piece is interesting. It's actually, I guess, really timely, right? Because your prior boss, uh, Pete Buttigieg, is now out here talking about investments in infrastructure. Which, I mean, to anyone who works in these spaces, is like, yeah, these are these are infrastructure things. And a lot of <laughs> a lot of folks seem to be somehow confused that like infrastructure is something other than literally the childish drawings you would see, like roads and bridges. Like, yeah, okay, those those are infrastructure. But like the whole purpose of infrastructure and why we build it is so people can get to things. And arguably the most basic thing they could get to is food. Food and water. I guess we just had someone talking about water and these same kind of issues on the last episode. But I guess it's kind of like an interesting well, I don't probably don't need to ask what your take is, but like, has it been like uniquely interesting to see Pete working on this stuff and and just knowing your experience with him and what you did and some of the mobility work that you did prior?
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's really incredible to see that trajectory. I mean, my first role with the City of South Bend was leading our Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge project, and it was focused on the issue of reliable transportation and looking at people holding often part time. Um, or after hours jobs and trying to get there when public transportation was a real issue. And, you know, having a reliable personal vehicle was also a real issue. And so, um, you know, that's something that we talked about all throughout my time with the city of South Bend. And so it's really incredible to see Pete in the position that he is now, because I think he understands more than most what that looks like, not just on the broader city level and certainly now at a national level working on these issues, um, but also has really seen that impact people on an individual basis and really was at the forefront of working on some really innovative answers to this problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I would hope that regardless of people's politics, they, this really ought to be a, a good learning experience for them because I'm fairly certain that, that the people who think Infrastructure is literally just roads and bridges are not coming from it from a, an opinion standpoint, but more of an, an ignorance standpoint, which is totally fine. And, and that I'd, I'd rather argue against ignorance than, than bias. So if it's an opportunity to show people that, you know, th- this is arguably an, easy way to, an easier way to think of it, right? Is don't worry about thinking whether or not we're going to build a road or fix a bridge or whatever. Think about can these thousand people over here get food? reliably and on a regular basis. And then and so that's a big part of infrastructure. And then as you were saying, the other component of it, which is so interesting is, you know, it's just like crazy for someone like me <laughs> to just imagine as much as I try to empathize and, and work, with, work with some of these organizations and people in the community. It's just really hard for me to fathom thinking about food as a problem, <laughs> mm. you know? So I spend so much time thinking about food as a problem from a total privilege side of the spectrum, which is like, which of the three places am I going to get brunch? Like, oh my God, Mm. I I don't know which one to decide, Mm. blah, blah, blah. But just the notion that like a portion of my day and my mental capacity and my, you know, budgetary concerns would be taken up by thinking about A, whether I can think about food today, whether I, you know, have the ability to even bother thinking about it. And B, if I can, like, how am I going to solve for it? This is pretty incredible. But I guess on that front, just to kind of drive the point home, if you have any real shock and awe stats or or anecdotes, if you've had any kind of personal experiences with folks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say too, whether it's transportation or access to food, these things are really easy to take for granted until there's a breakdown in your personal experience of them. Um, And it's something that we used to, um, kind of joke about it, the city, but it was true. One of the top calls that we would receive was about potholes or things kind of happening in the breakdown of, of roads and systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are things that are are easy to take for granted until there's an issue. And then suddenly it brings to light just how critical it is to your daily functioning. Yeah. And so when it comes to some statistics to share, I'll say first that kind of on a more local level, the, our indie hunger network we conduct an unmet need study. And so it looks at the unmet need of meals for our residents. Um, And we found in 2020 um, that over a quarter of Marion County residents were struggling to have enough food to put on their tables. That's crazy. Uh, So yeah, just a a really high number. um, And that the actual meal gap is over 9 million annually. So 9 million meals would be required to actually kind of meet that need and ensure that every household has enough food consistently. And I think on top of that, what's really important to note is that African American households are disproportionately impacted and actually experience hunger higher than 50% of the general population. Um, And so I think issues of of equity um, are really, really important when we're talking about this issue. I think too, on a more national level, COVID, like so many other issues has been just significantly exacerbated over the past year or so. Um, And according to one estimate from a U.S. Census Household Pulse survey, food insecurity more than doubled nationwide over the past year. So it went from about 11% in December 2018 to 23% in May 2020. And maybe even more importantly, food insecurity nearly tripled in households with children. And so it just goes to show Um, how close so many households were to kind of that tipping point of maybe being right at the edge of making it. And then, you know, a job loss or some other kind of economic factor just really tipped them into um, a really tough situation.
0: As horrible as COVID has been, there are a lot of potential silver linings. And I mean, this is the case with anything that happens to society where where something tragic happens, but there are a lot of lessons that could help us Kind of get to a, a better place in the future, and one of them I would hope would be that most people actually experienced you know an issue of insecurity at some point in the pandemic, whether it was just like toilet paper or whatever you know like some like some thing, one thing or two things that they felt like I need this for my family's security and safety or or health et cetera, et cetera, and I can't get it, right and that is like like, this is the kind of thing that people like you or I would actually try to run as like a pilot, right? In a normal scenario. Like, hey, let's try to get people who have enough to just understand at a core level what it means to not have what they need when they need it. And like COVID did that for us. It was like, oh, okay, we're doing this mass experiment where everybody who normally has all the resources <laughs> they need all of a sudden is like, wait, you mean I can't just pay more money to get a thing if I want it? Like, nope, it's just, it's just not there. Sorry. But I, I don't know if that actually is, <laughs> I don't know if that actually has landed for folks or maybe the, all the topics are still a little bit too hot, but maybe in the longer term, that'll be something that we see some, some more success with in this space because people hopefully will have more empathy for like, yeah, oh, I, I remember what that was like to not have one thing, let alone like food.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you you named empathy and I think that's something that we have absolutely seen that it's just especially when we're speaking with legislators or just other stakeholders in our community, there is much more openness now after this past year, because it's just been so clear that these these issues are issues, not just for a, a small minority, but for many, many, many people. There's just a lot more openness and empathy in having these conversations. And, you know, something that more and more people are realizing is that when we talk about safety net programs like SNAP or WIC, these programs don't benefit just a a really small number, which maybe some some people think, but that actually they benefit the majority of Americans. So at some point, safety net programs benefit over 70% of Americans. And so just to understand how critical these programs are to the thriving of our community members, and something that really blew me away, that I didn't fully know or understand until I stepped into this role, um, is that federal nutrition programs account for 84% of all food assistance. And in, that's, that's, that's specific to Indiana, that. but is reflective <laughs> of, of states across the country. So I think yeah. a lot of times when we think of food assistance, we're thinking of the meals distributed by food pantries, which are an incredibly important piece of this puzzle, but that the federal nutrition programs alone account for 84%. And that SNAP alone is over half of those meals. And so it just goes to show the overwhelming amount of support and how incredibly important those are in terms of really lifting up and supporting families in this situation.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I did, did not know that, but I guess I'm surprised, but it's also like, this is kind of the big problem with, uh, infrastructure and, and equity planning and stuff like that. And a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that you and I have worked with. And I guess because people love stories, uh, rather than just like raw facts and data and information, it's just so much easier to just say like, oh, there's this like wonderful startup or you know person or pantry or whoever who delivers meals and that's inspiring and they're and they're doing great things and all of that is true, but to look at that then and say like oh well that's those people who do that stuff for people I don't know and that's its own thing, is is not the reality that we need taxpayers or fellow community members to to have in their mind. Like the reality that we need to have in their mind is. This is why you spend money on things so that you don't get to a point where you have to spend the money on things because it's usually, you know, 10x more expensive when you have to do it. And then you also have to make a lot of uh, tough choices as to like which of the things you're going to fix first when a lot of it starts crumbling because so much of it is dependent, as you said, on other factors. So I'm curious to understand how you guys specifically solve this issue locally or, or where you've seen people solving it in uh, interesting and cool ways. But I, but I think I even kind of suffer from that too, where like, I didn't know some of those stats that you said. And if someone asked me like, oh, how do, you know, how do cities solve for, you know, food scarcity and food deserts, like probably a couple of uh, like local community, local community organizations and, and programs that I particularly like would be the first things that, that come to mind. Not like, oh, well, here's how federally we solve for that. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know the infrastructure behind that. Um, I mean, I'd know some of the, like, you know, snap and wake and some of that stuff, but I wouldn't be able to tell you like, here's how it works and here's how much funding goes into it. And here's what it delivers, et cetera, et cetera. I would just say like, Oh, this is really cool company with an app and they do this thing. And you know, it probably hands out some number of meals, which is useful, but definitely not the lion's share of how we solve this problem currently for better or worse.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think that's probably true of most people. And to the question of you know how, what are we doing to solve this issue or where has it been kind of solved or how are people approaching this um certainly i mean th- this is an issue that hasn't truly really been solved anywhere in the us because it is very reliant on those federal nutrition programs which have been chipped away over the years but as you mentioned other programs and organizations have done so much to fill in the gaps of the hunger relief system However, we need to expand the level of support and accessibility of the federal nutrition programs. And it's uh, been really cool to see, uh, as I joined Indie Hunger Network, we work very closely with the food banks, food pantries in our community, and they are some of the first to raise their hands and say, these federal nutrition programs are incredibly important, Uh, and we need them to do what they do so that... We can also do what we do and and help fill in those gaps. And so, really, that is a pretty unified message that we have amongst our partners. And I do think there are some really creative strategies that states and other organizations can implement to get food to people. Um, And one that's very top of mind right now that we've just recently been interacting with and having conversations with is called Get Cal Fresh. Um, So, a California state agency partnered with Code for America. Um, who helped them develop and now run this customer service program called Get Cal Fresh. And it helps more than 30,000 households apply for food assistance every month. Um, Mm -hmm. And they help both address the stigma um, and kind of mental barriers associated with applying, but also a lot of administrative barriers that are keeping a lot of eligible households from applying to these really important programs. Um, And I think it's just a really great example of the importance of human-centered design in this space, because they're coming at the development and implementation of this program, treating clients as the experts that they are of their lived experience. And that's just so powerful. And that's what we try to do in the work that we do every day. And I think some of the best examples that I've seen across the country are really saying our clients are the experts of this experience and their voice should be at the center of every step of this process.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point, too, about the stigma of it, right? And that either the stigma or the user experience, both being things that a lot of times people don't consider when, even when they do fund a solution for something, uh, just to say, okay, this is who it applies to, and therefore the people who it applies to will pursue the, the opportunity. But a lot of times, again, in many other things that you and I have worked in when you're talking about public transportation or, or education programs, things like that, you know, a lot of times you see like a, a level of usage that you're like, why why, why is this not higher? <laughs> and a lot of times it is it's either a stigma, a stigma coming from either like, I don't want to be on that program or like, I don't, I don't think I'm good enough for that program or I don't think that program understands like who I am and therefore it's not really for me or whatever the case may be. And then just the user experience, right? Of, of being able to say like, well, you know, what do I need to do to make this happen? A lot of times that first time experience with something, whether it's a, a government worker or in a digital interface, if it's off-putting, if it's confusing, if it's frightening, you're just going to find a whatever angle you can around that. And a lot of times, yeah, that results in people not getting the opportunity that they that they need. So, yeah. Uh, oh, you know, one question I kind of have, uh, and I I realize this is only some small portion of food waste and and unmet needs but i'm i guess i'm curious like about the litigation the like the liability issues that a lot of restaurants and food providers grocery stores things of that nature I, I know that that's kind of been slowly reshaping itself but if i'm not mistaken i think historically a lot of the reasons for otherwise good food just going in the dumpster at the end of the night or at least the justifiable story is like liability, right? And basically lawyers that are just saying like, yeah, we don't want to be responsible for what happens with this food. So we're just going to throw it out. And I know there's been good progress made on that front. And a lot of food delivery services work, at least some that I know of work with some kind of local chains and things of that nature to take advantage of that opportunity. But I guess I'm curious, like what you've seen or what your perspective is on kind of the litigation issue of, which seems silly, but in America, I get where that comes from. But like, it does seem silly to just think that workflow on paper is we make food, we end up with too much at the end of the day. We are more concerned about getting sued than we are about feeding people. We will burn this food.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think the thing that comes to mind when you ask that, there are definitely people that are working on creative answers to this because there are a lot of legal humps, hoops to jump through when it comes to, you know, just making sure that food is safe for consumption and kind of following some of those guidelines. A really interesting example that I saw in South Bend was called Cultivate Culinary. And so they were basically working with Notre Dame and other large food distribution partners. Um, So if there were catering events or um, I believe even food from dining halls or just kind of other uh, food events that ended up not being used. So no one touched it. They were able to come in, take that food, and then repurpose that for distribution to people who needed it. And so it was a way to kind of ensure that there was still that process of just food safety and kind of following those guidelines, but making sure that that food didn't just go to waste. And so there are people, I think, that are starting to really find creative solutions to that, but I think still working within the parameters of kind of those legal
0: restrictions that you name yeah that i mean now that i think about it i guess that's another interesting thing this probably wouldn't last but just like the the covid world of everyone who's handling this food is wearing masks and gloves and the customers are not breathing on it and whatever not that you would probably want to go about life that way in the future but uh i guess it's interesting for me to think about there was probably a lot more food that would qualify under those criteria, right, of like, this is food that can be repurposed and sent out to the community, to people, to people in need, because it, you know, it meets this criteria for safety. I hadn't thought about that, but that's interesting. It kind of gets to my hot take, which uh, is probably not hot to anyone who works in this space, (laughs) but, but, uh, but hot to anybody who thinks infrastructure is roads and bridges. So, (laughs) Yeah, my hot take is that I think given in this country, the abundance and the surplus of food that we have and resources, we ought to be treating food the way a lot of countries treat healthcare, which is just that, you know, the basics should be affordable public utilities and the, the luxuries can just operate in a, in a private market. Which So, you know, just reassuring folks that like just because food is public does not mean that, you know, you all have to eat the same cheese or that there aren't, going to be any restaurants like so there's nothing stopping you from doing that. And I guess I'd be interested to hear what your take is on on that.
1: Yeah, I I'd be really interested to explore, you know, as we're thinking about that idea, what would be considered basic versus a luxury. Um uh, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion around having enough food and I think increasingly the quality of the food. Um and so Personally, I believe food is a basic human right, and everyone has the right to enough food and to food that is nutritionally sufficient and culturally appropriate uh, and I think those are conversations that maybe haven't been as as prevalent in the past but are growing um, kind of in these spaces and and in programs and implementation and I think I would also uh, kind of always when I'm thinking about solutions or just how to approach these problems to really reframe the core problem. You know, in in our community, there's over a quarter of households that don't have enough food to eat, not to mention food that supports their health. Um, And so for me, it's very clear that this is an economic problem and we can't talk about hunger in a vacuum. Um, We need to be talking about a living wage and other economic policies that allow families to not only survive, but thrive. Um, And I think often in anti-hunger work and in these spaces, there is an opportunity to have more conversations around the fact that hunger is a symptom of poverty. And so any um, solutions or strategies that we're talking about should be directly tied to that.
0: Fact. Yeah. I think one of the tactics in, in the toolbox is kind of showing people the R a lot, well, especially folks who, who, who don't feel the need to invest in equity and things of that nature is like showing them the a holistic ROI of helping other people <laughs> as I think you did. And, and actually I had you come and present at a, at an event about this kind of thing, right? When you worked under mayor Pete uh, mo- doing a mobility program that basically was like, well, I'll let you explain it. But the idea, <laughs> the idea behind it, right. Is just that like, we need to show that there's a net value in providing a little bit of assistance to keep people from falling into a, a horrible rut. Can you kind of just touch on that for a second?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just basically that when you think about a lack of access to reliable transportation for an individual employee, that that is both, yes, a problem that they're experiencing on a personal level and has implications for their employer. Um, So if they're unable to get to work reliably, employers are experiencing often really high levels of turnover. Um, There are costs associated with rehiring and training. Um, loss of hours, paying overtime for people to cover shifts. And so we started to realize there is a real financial benefit to employers investing in reliable transportation for employees, particularly those that are working um, kind of irregular hours or outside of the normal hours of maybe public transportation and other yeah. things. And that actually by investing in that it saves them money in the long run as well as the headaches of going through that experience of high turnover rates and rehiring retraining, all of that. Um, yeah. And we were able to demonstrate that, that there was a significant financial benefit to employers doing so.
0: Yeah. Like that, you know, that that kind of thing I think is just so huge because it, it helps get folks out of the mind, you know, those people who are more comfortable and more aloof from those situations who would naturally just take the perspective of like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to use my... Resources to help other people. It's like it's not. It doesn't really work that way, man. Like, other people are the people who you know one day don't show up somewhere to nanny your kid or to work on your infrastructure or whatever. (laughs) These are the people who show up to do these things, and they're a part of your life. And if you can understand once you know you actually can understand that, like it costs you and everyone else in the in the long run to not help these people when there's a manageable level of resources required is just a vital thing to understand.
1: Yeah. And I think a a similar example in the food space. Um, So we talked about with transportation, that financial benefit to employers to invest in that. I think a similar example in terms of financial benefit that we often talk about for federal nutrition programs is that the USDA estimates that for every $5 of SNAP benefits that are spent, it generates $9 of economic activity. And for every Mm. billion dollars spent on SNAP, it supports 8,900 full-time jobs. So it's things like that that I think um, when there's maybe some pushback on federal nutrition programs, there's a real economic benefit to these programs as well. And it's something that we don't talk about enough. Um, But I think these can be really powerful ways to reframe the conversations around some of these issues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's huge. Yeah. Okay. So let me uh, give you a minute here to plug what you specifically work on right now.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So I work for Indie Hunger Network. I'm the director of advocacy and Indie Hunger Network is a coalition of hunger relief organizations in the greater Indianapolis area. Um, And we partner with nonprofit for-profit public sector and academic sectors And our core mission is to ensure that our collective hunger relief efforts are more efficient and effective. And so we go about that in a handful of different ways. Um, First and foremost, we're always working to foster collaboration and coordination amongst all of our stakeholders and partners. And there's many um, parallel efforts that are going on at a local, state and national level. So we're always working to make sure that we're talking with one another um, and coordinating those efforts. Um, We also invest in advocacy efforts to change policies and priorities. So that's what a lot of my work looks like on a daily basis. And then additionally, we lead a couple programs that fill in gaps in our hunger relief system. So for example, we have a program called Cooking Matters that provides cooking and nutrition education classes. And then we support our hunger relief partners to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of their work. So that looks like distributing grants or, uh, sharing best practices amongst those partners. Um, we also have food pantry summits regularly where we get all of those stakeholders together and they're talking and sharing experiences and best practices. So, um, definitely a huge emphasis on collaboration. Um, and that's really encouraging to me because I've often seen that lacking in other food spaces, yeah. um, and just seeing the power of, Everyone in this space with different strengths, different specific focuses, talking and sharing best practices and coming together around that larger effort has been really powerful.
0: I love that that is so holistic in, in that way. It also kind of really celebrates being better at this, right? It's not just like, hey, we got to make sure we get meals to people. It's like, yeah, we can teach people how to cook. We can bring other agents into this to have discussions. We can do it just making it more, a bigger story and understanding, yeah, the, the holistic uh, needs in all this work involved. So IndieHunger.org, is that the best place for folks to find you guys? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. So we've got lots of information on our website, uh, including contact information and all of that. So um, it's a great place. We've got a lot of um, reports and information and all of our partners listed as well.
0: Nice. If uh, So for the most people who are not in Indianapolis, um, what, uh, w- what would you kind of suggest as like a first step if they want to learn... More about this problem and how they can contribute to solving it in their community, or what what maybe should be their first step, even if it's not local to their community?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think the two sources that I often go to when I'm thinking at more of a national level are Feeding America and Food Research and Action Center frac um, is okay. kind of the acronym. but Um, They both have really great resources, both if you want to look at data specific to your community, your state, um, but also they have really great action steps. Um, So they provide, for example, kind of like a high level, here are 10 things that every legislator should know um, Mm -hmm. in this space, or, um, you know, here are some really actionable advocacy steps that you can take. And so those have both been really uh, reliable and I think uh, robust resources around um, just things that you can do and ways that you can learn about what's going on in your community.
0: Well said. Well, again, thanks Genevieve for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for bearing with my, uh, my lateness.
1: Not at all. Thank you so much for having me, Mitch. It was great to get to catch up and chat with you about some really important issues and just get to talk together. So I appreciate that a lot.
0: Yeah. Same here. Take care, Genevieve. Bye. Thanks again to Genevieve for quenching our thirst for knowledge. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack, and thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Hot takes and hot guests are always welcome. Get in touch at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or telekineticshow.com. Till next time.